Hey there, my hemp nuts. Are you ready for the cannabis bonanza? <laughs> we have a fun show for you today. We are joined by Jan Roberts, licensed clinical social worker, cannabis Hello. therapy expert. Yay! Give us a little bit of background about yourself. Hey, I'm Jan Roberts, and I'm a clinical therapist here in Manhattan, also a cannabis researcher. I teach at NYU all about crazy things such as psychopathologies and human development and i don't know what else i see patients nice yes and uh, we're joined by dan goldman who works for one of the most popular podcasts in the world mj today top two three percent is a legendary cannabis activist <laughs> uh, we're so happy to have you anything else you want to add to that dan uh you're making me blush uh... <laughs> I love your shirt. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> I wish everyone could see this shirt. It's uh, for the listeners. It's an Andre the Giant uh, classic poster on a green, on a field of green. <laughs> that field uh, of Kelly green. Yeah. Very cool. So <laughs> I feel like I'm on the delicious dish. <laughs> so we're going to uh, play a little game later. You know, Dan knows a lot about cannabis news. So I thought it'd be kind of fun to play a little game with you two called Guess the Cannabis Fake News. Oh, um, right. We're going to discuss uh, some famous African-Americans or two in cannabis history. It's that time of the year. And there's some pretty cool um, contributions to science and other stuff. Um, and we're also, uh, going to discuss things like what's working, what's not working right now. Oregon's fiasco, CBD's bad hair day in New York with it getting banned. <laughs> um, and, uh, we'll also have today's word. Yes. Did you know that every podcast we have, we're going to have a word of the day. <sighs> and today's word of the day is Bogart. And wh where does Bogart come from? You tell me, Jayhan. I'm going to say it's, it's Greek for keeping something in a vase. Is, is it? That, I don't know. <laughs> I say that it's a generational term because I don't think people use Bogart as much anymore. Well, I thought it came from Humphrey because <laughs> he stole all the scenes. Yes, yes. It is a slang verb to keep something all for oneself, thus depriving anyone else of having any. A slang term derived from the last name of the famous actor Humphrey Bogart. Dun, right. dun, dun, dun. Um, is that actually it? That's the etymology yeah. of and, Bogart? And, and it's, it's a little bit it. deeper than that. It's uh, he, it's because he often kept a cigarette in the corner of a mouth, but seemingly never actually drawing on it or smoking from it. So <laughs> That is pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> so um, whenever you hear the word of the day, please do not scream really loud into the microphone. <laughs> Instead, we're going to do this. <sighs> but, so this isn't Pee-wee's Big Adventure or Pee-wee's Playhouse? <laughs> wanted it to be. <laughs> but uh, it's so first, uh, high, but here's another yeah. bit of trivia about it. It's, Need the it's, hat. <laughs> it, Bogart's first documented popular use was in the 1968 song Don't Bogart, Bogart Me, featured in the Easy Rider soundtrack. All oh, right. So that kind of established its, its use. Um, but, you know. Um, so don't I think, Bogart that. Who's that song by? Uh, the Fraternity of Man. I've never heard of them. Yeah. Well, or that song. <laughs> <laughs> Jayhan has. Jayhan yes. has. Well, I used to do a little marijuana radio show in Berkeley back in the day uh, about medical cannabis. And Just so a wee one. We used to play a lot of cannabis theme music. Um, I used to get calls about people saying, hey, you're playing the same songs as last week. <laughs> <laughs> but, there are only so many songs out there. But, um, you know, Dan, I have a, a bunch of questions I'd love to ask you, some open-ended stuff, if you're feeling sure. up for it. But, Still. um I got it. Where where to start? You know, there's so much going on. Good news, bad news. Um, but may, let's start here. What comes to mind in terms of the cannabis industry or the cannabis thing when I say the word punchable? 
Sir, <laughs> um, I mean, I'm I'm pretty nonviolent, so uh, not not that much comes to mind. But there are, you know, there are politicians who are coming around to legal cannabis now that it's politically popular, and you know, they'll say things like, uh, you know, listen, we always want to encourage people to evolve on their positions, but you know, when you see people, elected officials, say things like. Uh, you know the the science has changed. The science has been the science forever. It's the uh, the political attitudes that have changed, and now that it's safe to you know join the board of advisors of a cannabis company after you're out of office <laughs> or whatever uh, <laughs> to pick one. Um, you know, like that, that's coming on. So those people are, you know, it, it's it's pretty punchable. That being said, um, that's very punchable. Yeah, a lot of my feelings of punchability are <laughs> mitigated by advertising. So if any of those companies want to advertise on our podcast, uh, I don't all of a sudden okay. want to punch you nearly as much. Hold on one second. Punchability here. So we're talking about something that's violent. We spent last week talking about that damn horrible book. Tell your children uh. about how. Cannabis is linked to violence. So I love the fact that, Dan, you're not a violent See, person. You so, passed the first test. <laughs> <laughs> so again, the, the, the science does not prove that cannabis equals violence. So. So, yeah, it's, a good, it's a good point. You brought up a lot about you know, cannabis businesses um, sponsoring things and helping to you know, jumpstart research, jumpstart shows. Uh, you, know, you must talk to a lot of people out there in the cannabis space. What's I mean, you know, I'm curious because I have my own views on it. But what's some bad advice you often hear when people talk about the cannabis industry? Like my favorite is, "Hey, if you open a dispensary, you'll make a lot of money," or something like that. Well, I mean, that's not necessarily <laughs> bad advice. Um, you, you know, listen, um, I don't like to see people, you know, upend their lives. Um, you know, move to a new part of the country where cannabis is legal from a state where it's not. And with a dream of getting a job at a dispensary because, you know, oftentimes these people are spending a ton of money on, you know, certifications from, you know, whatever training institute is nearby them that's offering them, you know, uh, horticulture training or whatever class for $2,000 or something. And, I, you know, just none of the people I know who work in the cannabis industry were hired because they have, you know, I mean, with all due respect to the teachers and the people who go and run Oaksterdam, but nobody I know has gotten a job because they haven't. Uh, an Oaksterdam certificate. And, uh, you know, it's very valuable information to learn. But um, right. I think most of the skills in the cannabis industry can be learned, um, you know, whether it's retail or manufacturing or cultivation. Most of those skills are transferable from other areas. And there are people who are entering from all of those areas all the time. So I don't like to see people, you know, just upend their lives because they think it's a good idea to join the cannabis industry. When the reality is, is that unless you are the owner of a business and you're well capitalized, most of those jobs are pretty low paying. Oh, right. that's a great, right. great point. Oh, thank you. Um, so, you know, you've <laughs> it's been a great the, point. I'm, yeah, I like it. I like it. It's good advice for kids coming out of school. Aim a little higher than working behind a counter, maybe. Right. Uh, if you can, I mean, uh, there's lots of other opportunities I think they'll come around for the cannabis. And just industry. lots of other opportunities outside of cannabis. I just, yeah. you know, this one thing when we started Students for Sensible Drug Policy, you know, 20 some odd years ago, there were so many people who wanted when they graduated to get like the one opening at a drug policy reform organization for an entry-level position, and they're just, you know, there weren't that many jobs at Normal or the Drug Policy right. Alliance or Marijuana Policy Project or Students for Sensible Drug Policy. So if you got one of them, you know, you were in a great position, but there's so many other things that we would have to encourage people to do outside of cannabis that right. still means you're part of the movement and part of the, uh, 
you know, the efforts to change the laws where you live. I mean, I just saw somebody from Texas who, you know, they've been a, pu- a public school teacher for 20 years in a state that doesn't have, you know, a, a large amount of money going into their public education system. And, you know, they wanted to move to a legal state and join the industry and do this kind of certificate programs. And it just strikes me as, you know, the kind of people who think that they're going to get a job bartending by going to bartending school. That's just not how jobs behind bars are gotten. Right. Hmm. So how I'm curious, how did you get into this industry? Um, well, in – well, <laughs> like a lot of people who enter uh, in activism, uh, I, I got in trouble for cannabis in high school. <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, I, this is, you know, in the 90s and the internet was kind of in its, you know, early phases. And so I was uh, looking for information online. There was a couple of normal chapters that had some websites, but there really wasn't much. And uh, – Eventually, I found my way to uh, the Drug Reform Coordination Network site, and they had a uh, little anti-dare section. And uh, Chris Conrad actually wrote a uh, a pamphlet that I picked up at the uh, first uh, Mid- Great Midwest Marijuana Harvest Festival that I went to as a freshman when I was at uh, University of Wisconsin. Right. So Chris that kind of led me. The author of Cannabis Yields and Doses, court qualified expert. Yeah, yeah. Chris is uh, you know just a hero to the movement for decades, right. and. Um, so uh, I got onto the DRC Net newsletter, uh, the Week Online, the Drug War Chronicles, and uh, then uh, the Students for Sensible Drug Policy got started in 1998, and I kind of came back to college that year. I was going to be a junior, and I was like, this is the year we're going to start a group, and I want it to be for something, not against something, and I don't know what we're going to call it yet, and uh, somebody else from Wisconsin already uh, got in touch with them and put up a poster, and I was like, oh, students for sensible drug policy. What a great idea. Yeah. Uh, and that was uh, 1999, the fall of 99, and I uh, went to their first conference that year and uh, been a part of that organization, you know, as a student, a board member, a staff member, an alumni, and uh, the only person who's been to every single one of their international conferences. Oh, wow. Nice. Wow, that's great. Yeah. Great. <laughs> 20 years after I graduated college, still <laughs> hanging out at a student so organization. You, what, a, <laughs> what a great job. To work in this industry. Well, too. you know, I mean, I'll, I'll say this honestly, because the podcast is all people that we know from, you know, our right. history as activists. And I think that's one of the reasons that we're able to, you know, draw such a huge audience so quickly. I think right. that a lot of the other shows that are interviewing and they're great podcasts out there that do this format. But, you know, people say, you know, like, oh, you have a podcast about marijuana. I could be a guest on your show. Oh, yeah. I'm like, oh, that's really nice of you to invite yourself into <laughs> my <laughs> Podcast. Wait, nobody asked you. But, so wait, uh, those are the same people who bogart trying to bogart your show. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> wait, so, hold on now, Jayhan. Hold on. So first off, he's done this podcast. You told me that he invited himself onto our podcast. No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, so you have a great perspective going back almost the history of starting with California passing the first like Prop 215 in the late 90s. But what has become more important, less important over the years for cannabis? Like there's some things like it used to be, um, you know, passing uh, like almost emergency legislation allowing patient access, and right. now it seems like. Um, that those issues are changing or those topics of conversation are changing. But in, in your experience, what has become like more important, less important? Well, I mean, you know, what's always been important is, you know, the art of the possible, right? Politics is the art of the possible. So, you know, what we can get done has been important. That used to be things just like, you know, if you had the political will in your city, but the politicians were recalcitrant, you could pass a lowest law enforcement priority initiative. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, the work was the follow through and making sure that, you know, people lived up to that. And there were 
consistent meetings with the prosecutors and the police to examine what, you know, what arrests were taking place and why. And you saw that in Seattle and in Oakland. Now what's important is expungements as part of any legalization initiative that as all these new states Mm. pass their legalization initiatives, the idea, you know, when Colorado and Washington first passed theirs, the idea of including expungements was seen as like way too broad and overreach. And, you know, we're already stretching the, you know, the art of the possible because nobody's ever done this before. Now that we've done this before in, you know, 10 states, um, you know, and the District of Columbia moving forward now, what we can ask for is a little bit greater. And so, you know, it's important to include the idea that nobody, once cannabis is legal, should remain, you know, in prison or behind bars or have a stain on their record for a thing that never should have been, you know, criminalized in the first place. Right, right. What can our listeners do? Because this is actually someone brought this up um, and asked me about it, about you know, because this is such a huge issue. It's impacted um, the African-American community and other minorities in a much more profound way than it has uh, with white middle-class kids. Mm -hmm. And so obviously there's a disproportionate share of um, uh, records and and, uh, imprisonments for this. What can just anyone listening to us today, what can they do to kind of help bring about this change? Because I agree with you, this is ridiculous. What can they do? So there's a lot of organizations right now that are working on, uh, you know, expungement, the process. So mm-hmm. some states are automatically in, uh, asking their district attorneys to review these cases going back, you know, a period of years. Mm-hmm. Other states are making it so, you know, uh, people who are impacted have to be more proactive. And so organizations like the Rights Restoration Project, uh, people like Cage Free Cannabis, who are sponsoring right. a lot of these expungement, um, you know, events and fairs around the country. And states where this has been decided. And then the other thing is, you know, every county in this country has an elected district attorney. Mm-hmm. And the idea of pressuring people who are running for this race and are asking to be, you know, the chief law enforcer right. of this county in this community, um, asking them not to, you know, even if the law hasn't changed legislatively, asking them to exercise their prosecutorial discretion right. and making that an issue in all of these races, you know. Races for district attorney aren't things that usually attract a lot of attention, um, you know, depending on where you are and who's running. It's, you know, obviously different in San Francisco where, uh, you know, the son of some uh, weather underground uh, activists is potentially running for district attorney there. But, uh, you know, in most places, if you, you know, show an interest in the district attorney's race where you are and you raise this issue, you can make it a high profile issue. And that changes the dynamics because nobody thinks anybody should be. Even our opponents concede now that nobody should be getting arrested or going to jail for this. Right. And yet, you know, in every state where we're legalizing it, somebody is the last person to be arrested. Right. And to paraphrase, you know, John Kerry in the Vietnam War, you know, how do you ask a man to be the last man to be arrested for a cannabis (laughs) offense? (laughs) <laughs> that's my John Kerry circa 1973 that impression. That's so authentic. Yeah. I like it. I'm basically a secret Brahmin. You didn't uh, sound like Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I'd like to take a little break from the cannabis combo and come back to it. I wanted to play a new segment that we're working on um, that we're calling Guess the Cannabis Fake News. Woo! So I'm going to share a few cannabis headlines. Some are slightly altered. Okay. Uh, and you guys have to guess which one is false and give your reason. Is so, there a prize? Um, yes. And, What's uh, it's, the prize? It's really great, and I'll mention it at the end. Okay. All right. Oh, so it's a competition, <laughs> so, buddy. So um, basically the idea is not to be right or wrong, but, but to, to discuss – I'm really good at trivia. But, 
Well, I'm uh, really good at competition. But you can ask for clarifications. <laughs> but like basically, so if the headlines like uh, medical cannabis users reduce their intake of benzodiazepine, be like, I think this is true. Lots of people use cannabis instead of muscle relaxants due to their side effects. You know, the goal is to use what you know about cannabis to discuss why these might be true or not. So uh, I'm going to read you six headlines, and then we'll go through them, and I'll keep tally. So Okay. Um, uh, do we blurt it out or do we raise no, our no, hand? No, what think, do we do? Think, think? first, and okay. then I'll come back to them and ask you as individuals. Oh, geez. So, so the first headline is uh, <laughs> a cannabis producer just topped uh, Apple as the favorite stock among millennials. Um, the second one is low doses of CBD increase the psychedelic effects of THC. The third one, feds, local police launch raids on up to 50 marijuana grow houses in the Denver area. And this is all recent news from the last two weeks, right? Uh, headline four, a partially smoked joint found in a vase in the White House. Um, number five, scientists use marijuana consumers' urine to produce electricity. <laughs> and number six... World Health Organization recommends rescheduling cannabis, says CBD is not under international control agreements. So we'll circle back to the first one. A cannabis producer just topped Apple as the favorite stock among millennials. Yes. Jan, you think it's this? Why do you think it's yes? Because I got something from Motley Fool this week. Mm. Dan, what do you think? I was going to say no, because millennials can't afford to buy stocks. Ooh. Good. Okay. Okay. That's, that's fair. Um, um, yeah, that is, a, that is a fair thing. Okay. How about the second one? Wait, wait, wait. What's the answer? I'm going to go do them all at once. Oh, don't. I'm going to have to remember what my answer is. No, I wrote it down. It's fine. <laughs> okay. You're good. Don't all right. worry. All right. Um, Professional. So okay. the second one is uh, <laughs> low doses of CBD increase psychedelic effects of THC. Do you guys think this could be true? Could be false? Uh, what are they smoking in this study? So, uh, low doses of CBD increase psychedelic effects of THC. My, my instinct is to say it's false, but because of that, and because I know how trivia and these kinds of games work, <laughs> I'm going to say that this is actually one of those that you're supposed to think is false, but it's really true. So I'm going to go true, but I, I don't. I, my, I, I wouldn't describe my experiences with cannabis as psychedelic. Uh, I'm using yeah. air quotes, but I have heard other people who air do. Quotes. Uh, and, and those people tend to be, you know, low dose users. So that's why I'm going to say that somehow that is, is true. And so I look forward to finding out a, why. Okay. Cause are you saying it hypothetically could be a study of people who don't use cannabis and they brought them into a room and they experience the psychedelic effect, but not necessarily maybe with heavy users may not experience that effect or right. Sure. Users. That's what I'm going to hypothesize with zero. I'm your science translator. It's fine. Science <laughs> translator. Uh, Jan, what do you think? Low okay. doses, CBD? But see, it was the verbiage I didn't like of that question. You say that CBD causes? Low doses of CBD increase psychedelic effects. So I would say no. Why? Because it wouldn't increase it. It would decrease it. Right, because CBD <laughs> mitigates the effect right. of THC. You wouldn't expect that. So it's it. a trick question. It was all in your verbiage, yeah. I think. Okay, okay. All right, <laughs> moving Dan's on. shaking his head. We'll move on to number three, and then we'll unveil the answers. Yeah, I'm probably totally wrong, just so, so you it, know that. That's Dan. not the point. It's okay. I'm... So uh, here's a headline, and I was used to seeing headlines like this 10 years ago, but um, feds launch local, uh, feds, local police launch raids on up to 50 marijuana grow houses in Denver area. True or false, did this happen in the last two weeks? Is this a headline? 
Who wants to go? I'll say false. False. Uh, I'm going to go with true, although I didn't read about it. So, But it it seems like – although you said in Denver. Yeah. Ooh, I'm going to actually go false because I believe this happened in L.A. Oh, <laughs> well, it might have. It might. It might have. See, Jay Hun's just messing with us at this okay. point. So, <laughs> you know, now that you got me all thinking like the double switcheroo. I know. I'm, like, I'm starting to get paranoid, right. Jay Hun. <laughs> so uh, this it's is a uh, dose so, CBD. I know. So, so the next one is a story about uh, a partially smoked uh, marijuana joint found in a in a vase or a piece of pottery in the White House. Again, I didn't hear about this in the last two weeks, but I'm going to say true. But, you know, part of me wants to say false because I want to say it's not a joint. It was a blunt. (laughs) It was the end of a blunt from, like, Snoop Dogg's visit whenever that was. Okay. What do you think? I will say true. All right. Only just because why not? (laughs) Um, All right. uh, Number five, uh, science headline. uh, Scientists use marijuana consumer's urine to produce electricity. Is this a true headline, true story? I actually know the answer to this one. <laughs> this one yeah, this one I actually read. Shit. Okay. okay, so it's oh, true. Oh. It's true. Or, or it didn't true. read. Or it didn't read. <laughs> That's fine. Gave it away. Damn. True. Uh, this one, true. I, I'm going to go with true. Okay, okay. And we'll get back to why or why not it is. All right, so this one, um, WHL, World Health Organization, recommends rescheduling cannabis, says CBD is not under international control agreements. True or false? Headline. I don't know. Dana. Oh, uh, I'm going to go with true. Mostly true, all true. Oh, uh, wait a minute. <laughs> just it was in, yeah. So, what do you guys say? True. True? I'm gonna okay. Go with all true. All true. All right. All right. So, um, so the first one cannabis producer just topped Apple as a favorite stock among millennials. Does this sound plausible? Yeah, but Apple stock's going down. It's like when uh, ArcView used to promote that, uh, you know, cannabis was more popular than – more growing faster oh. than smartphones. And it was like, yeah, but everybody has already got a smartphone. Smart it's phone. like – That's why. 2012. So, technically, this is a true headline from Business Insider. Um, basically, more people own shares of the Canadian cannabis producer Aurora Cannabis than Apple on Robinhood, a trading app. Isn't that crazy? Mm. So that's a little crazy. So as of November eighth uh, is when yeah. that date is from. I keep getting emails from the Motley Fool so, telling me about that. All right. So um, number two, uh, low doses of CBD increase psychedelic effects of THC. This was actually just published uh, about a week ago. A randomized controlled trial of vaporized THC and cannabidiol alone and in combination in frequent and infrequent users, acute intoxication effects, and they actually found that. Um, high doses of CBD with THC knocked out any uh, intoxicating effects, um, while the low doses seem to enhance some of the effects of THC. Mm. Um, not what I expected either from reading the study. Um, How did you feel about the way it was designed? I thought it was interesting because it was inhaled uh-huh. pure products, cause, uh, which is different than orally consumed or topical or other administration routes, tinctures and things like that. Um, but it's, it's, it seems kind of plausible, but I, you know, I think that we, I think it was, it depends on what type of group infrequent users will report almost anything is, is feeling intoxicated. Uh, what kind of dosing? I mean, are they, how are they measuring, are they measuring it as a percentage or in uh, terms 400 of 400 milligrams was the high dose of CBD. And, um, I think four milligrams was the low dose of CBD. Interesting. Cause I mean, isn't low dose CBD with THC just generally what we consider yeah. the <laughs> cannabis that people consume right yeah <laughs> right without yeah. it being you know manipulated to high right. cbd right. strains yeah 
Yeah, so it's an interesting study, but it, it shows that it is indeed possible. <laughs> I guess. Oh. End of one. First of its kind. First to actually do an inhaled study on combinations of these drugs. You think this Where has been beaten to death? Um, this was published in the European uh, Journal or something about oh, it. So it's a European study? Um, European, you said that with like a European snarl. European Archives of Psychiatry and Clinical Neuroscience. Yeah. <laughs> Um, <laughs> it's a cultured study. All right. It's a cultured study. So, our third one, <laughs> feds, local police, launch raids on 50 grow houses in Denver area. Does it sound believable? Well, it's true. Uh, DEA and local police fanned out to dozens of alleged illegal grow houses. Dozens of search warrants were served on homeowners and residents across the metro area, said Randy Ladd. <laughs> Spokesman for the DEA's Denver field office. Oh, that can't wow. be a real name. The spokesman of the Denver DEA field office. Can I just be called like a British? Like... Randy Lad. Oh, Randy Lad. <laughs> Was that a British accent? He really has. The <laughs> thing. I have like two accents I can do, and you heard him already. He has a thing for cannabis. He's a Randy Lad. Ew! Ew! I dare say, Randy Lad. Um, they oh, rented a U-Haul Randy. trucks that they loaded with um, bags of marijuana and bags of cash. I bet Greer could do a very good um, impersonation of Randy, British Randy Ladd, because he, he does it great. Did you hear his voicemail? No. When you, did you call him the other day? Because his voicemail is this funny British accent that he oh, does. I thought I called British the wrong thing. number. No, it was him. <laughs> I was like, well, okay. Greer right. couldn't be here today. So my my, next, <laughs> my favorite story for this week is the partially smoked joint found in the vase in the White House. We're saying it's true. It's true. Well, it is based on a true story, but it was not news. This is actually some uh, someone told me about that they did about ten years ago, but <laughs> <laughs> they haven't found it yet. But uh, this is a totally made up headline, but it's believable, and it kind of makes me want to go to the White House I and know, start checking. You know what? Maybe cushions. we should ask people to go when they go on their tour to the White House to yeah. leave one. Please and that way, the, it's like a message Lincoln from Jan bedroom, and Jayhan. Large vase with flowers <laughs> on it. Like, please look around, tight corners in the White House while you're on a tour. Yeah, it's I'm like, sure they love that. We, yeah, I know. It's like a game we could play. So we both said it was true that scientists use marijuana consumers' urine to produce electricity. Yes, and that is because marijuana might be more powerful than you think. They use microbial fuel cells. Um, and basically put in metabolites from the urine, and it created a, a current. Um, and so they're looking at using um, synthetic urine infused with cannabis metabolites to potentially create voltages for these bioelectric batteries. Whoa. Uh, and this is what's <laughs> funny to me is these scientists actually said that we have to do something with the urine. We can't just let it into the environment because THC metabolites are bad for the animals. And I had to think that marijuana metabolites have been around for a few thousand years. I think probably Xanax metabolite hasn't been around oh that God. long. But yeah. but that was one of their concerns in collecting this urine. Are you was, serious? Yeah, it's is a so yeah. all of the like SSRI I residual know. waste in urine is just making so, all of these animals right. antidepressed. The, the results. <laughs> um, so basically, happy woodland this, creatures. Happy so these so these guys will buy your urine is what they're saying. But tell, no, they like said a happy moo versus a sad oh. moo. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, how moo? So they, uh, they this is what they said. The results show that these cells can be used for the treatment of cannabis uh, metabolites found in human urine to prevent contamination of natural ecosystems with these resilient and toxic metabolites. Fun stuff. All right, our last headline. Is the World Health Organization recommends rescheduling cannabis? Says CBD is not under international control agreements. Does this sound too good to be true? Because it is. Well, they did recommend rescheduling cannabis. They did not say CBD is not under international control. They said it should not be 
under oh. international control. Ooh, wordplay there. But um, clever. Very clever, You're such I know. A nerd. Um, <laughs> but they but they believe that uh, pure CBD and CBD preparations containing no more than 0.2% THC um, should not be included in any way in their national drug control conventions in the future. Wait, what was the threshold of THC in there? 0.2%. That's oh, lower than uh, yeah. the feds. Yeah, they're... They just wanted to one-up them, probably. <laughs> so One-down them, I guess. One-down them. There you go. Can you go – can your equipment test this low? But, <laughs> <laughs> um, and so you guys did pretty well. You each uh, got uh, four right and uh, two wrong. Very oh, good. You guys, hey, and I, I. <laughs> I like how you believe the story that some friend told me 10 years ago about their tour at the White House is real. <laughs> It is based on a true story, but well, it, then it is news. But it didn't wasn't an actual headline the last uh, couple weeks, right? I guess like the story was uh, was it like Snoop and Willie? Somebody was at the White House, uh, and, and they left. Some weed. Yeah, oh, they like did. They, or I don't know if they left the joint there. Or they just like yeah. smoked it when they were an overnight guest, or yeah. they went to the bathroom and okay. blazed out the window. And we'll yeah. call it a draw. All right. <laughs> Something Good happened. Job. Somebody's gotten Good high job. at the White House. So, um, well. Real quick, it's it's that time of the year um, where well, I want to just take a moment to point out one um, African-American in cannabis history who's done some amazing stuff. He's a professor at William Patterson University, New Jersey, um, Emmanuel Navi. He was gone to a big controversy many years ago because he proposed dun, 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 that there are CB2 receptors in the brain and on brain cells. Wow. The type- what does that mean? Well, you have the type 1 receptor, CB1, TB, THC stimulates that. Type 2, you know, that's in the brain, most abundant protein in the mammalian brain. Then you have the CB2 receptor was thought to just be in the immune system helping with inflammation. Right. It doesn't get you high stimulating it. Um, but he went on to get a Fulbright scholarship for his research on this, write, writing two books, Biology of Marijuana from Gene to Behavior and Marijuana Cannabinoid Research Methods and Protocols. He got so much flack for this theory that he published a book on how to study marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is how you study it. These are the proto- protocols. Um, uh, he's done a lot of research uh, in Ethiopia as well on, you know, the use of cannabis there and things mm. like that. Um, uh, but That's cool. He's been a friend for a long time. I'm going to see if he'll come on the show someday. But I just thought, take a moment for history. Da, da, da. Well, wait, when did he, when did he uh, first theorize this? Uh, in 2006, at okay. an International Research Cannabinoid Society meeting in Hungary, they actually had a debate um, whether or not there were CB2 receptors on neurons, and it was him versus the entire congregation. Really? <laughs> I mean, he was right. It was, uh, it was the most, uh, as far as a bunch of really tired people who traveled all over the world from Europe, it was the most animated, you are wrong. Uh, like, all these, like, I think one person <laughs> fell asleep. But it was it was the most hotly contested debate I, I had seen at a conference uh, in a while where people were just lining up at the microphone to tell him why he was wrong. And then, you know, now everyone's talking about targeting TB2, CB2 yeah. receptors in the brain. Right. Um, so it, it is kind of a, a groundbreaking way. He has over 100 publications, many of which are on cannabinoids. Um, right. Right. But it was, it's been a long journey for him. But, you know, it's so fascinating. So we're really only talking about 13 years ago. This whole field is fascinating, the amount of discovery that's taken place in the last 20 years. It's it's really kind of cool. Well, do we want to pause for a moment of science, Jan, with you? Do you, mm. um, you know, you're a clinician. Yeah. You see a lot of stuff. Yep. Um, is there yep. is there a, a something interesting? Yeah. Or... 
so I see you've experienced so i I'm fascinated with cannabis's role in mental health just because um as a clinician uh, you know I see patients and uh who have a whole host of issues, everything ranging from like depression anxiety p t s d um and anorexia, just name it and I like to work with my clients um who have struggled with other kind of medications and haven't had very much success mediating their moods and stuff. So I, that's kind of how I've gotten interested into cannabis and mood regulation. And I have like, I work with clients with who have medical marijuana cards or medical cannabis cards. And, um, I I'm fascinated. We have a project, which you and I've been talking about that we're going to be doing, um, here in New York, on PTSD and cannabis. And so I've seen some incredible outcomes that have happened with my patients who've used medical cannabis. Um, one of the, you know, one, one person in particular that I see, and I can't, you know, give a lot of the details out just because of HIPAA and, and patient confidentiality, but this was a patient who had found their spouse um, who had uh, committed suicide and had PTSD really badly and wound up um, using medical cannabis, and it was the only thing that could work for this person because otherwise they weren't sleeping, they weren't, uh, they're sad, upset all the time, having flashbacks, and it was really kind of cool to see that he could finally, or she could finally sleep. And uh, When you say work for them, do you mean reestablish sort of a balance in their life yeah exactly that it it was like this person you know obviously with ptsd when you have all these symptoms you you really it limits your functioning you don't have vitality you often have mood disorders with it like depression with it and this kind of helped him kind of re-engage with his life and it was just fascinating to watch because i was with this client and they couldn't really tolerate any kind of antidepressants they they just couldn't it was really we we tried that, but cannabis was the only thing that allowed the person like to get back. So they play sports now with their friends and they're attending groups, support groups through it. They sleep a lot better and their appetite came back. And, and, and it was just fascinating to see him get that vitality back. You know, that's and, awesome. and and that's where I think that we we really need to be looking at the potential for cannabis. And, and was this regulation. with the 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 patient just using cannabis on their own, or were they coming in to get some uh, therapeutic interventions oh, as well? Therapeutic intervention. You know, I am a mental health clinician, so I I obviously do therapy with people and um, have a background in really working with trauma. And so, yeah, it was that. So this was more like a conjunctive therapy. You know, it's like you have to have many things in your toolbox. You can't rely on just one thing. And cannabis actually, I would say, reactivated him again, if that makes sense, And that he really, he's starting to ask him, you know, he's, he's just gotten a lot better. It's helped not only with the actual symptoms as far as um, – uh, the flashbacks and the hypervigilance and the tearfulness and sleep. It's just made a, a, in a lot of different areas of his life. He's starting to, to really benefit from that. Is what you're offering to patients to, to speak so openly about them using medical cannabis, is that unique, do you think, oh, to yeah. your practice? I, well, it is to my practice, absolutely. But most mental health clinicians don't like to talk about cannabis because we've all been trained that it leads to cannabis use disorder. 
and right. and that it's so pathologized. And as a clinician, the last thing I want is my patient not to be able to talk about what's going on in their lives. And I really, I don't want anyone to use anything, whether it's food, alcohol, cannabis, sex, shopping, whatever the vice could be, to hide from their lives. I want them to use it to engage in their lives. And and it's fascinating when you start having these, when I've started having these conversations with patients, just how it opened up this doorway for them to really start to kind of get better. And and so I like to to help my patients kind of understand how cannabis can impact them in a positive way. I do cannabis-assisted psychotherapy, and it's just, it's an you know, a great opportunity for people to um, try to regulate their moods in a different way, a more natural way. Yeah. And I worry all the time about benzos, you know, and well, that... Oh. Uh, other than their toxicity and enhancing the effects of opioids <laughs> and their constant abuse and diversion. And um, high, highly There's actually more benzos um, yeah. diverted and used <clears throat> than opioids in, in, in the world. Um, but other than that, why are you concerned? About <laughs> <that>? <laughs> I mean... Because I've never seen anyone feel more engaged with when they're on benzos. They want to just sleep and it dulls them. And cannabis... Yes, say that me. like it's a bad thing. <laughs> uh, hey, I love sleep, but I'm just saying. Like, a, I'm looking at it from how can I get my per, my patient to live their best life, right? And I, I mean, I you think know. one of the things you know, just as a, you know, an activist who entered the space as a you know a, a youthful cannabis consumer, yeah. um, you know, certainly who started before the age where you know most people still suggest that you know like adolescent brain development is impacted negatively, and. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that I had a I had a meeting. This is you know many years ago, but with a my member of Congress trying to get him to support the uh, the amendment to the Justice Department appropriation bill that would not allow the federal government to go after people in states where uh, you know their medical marijuana business was legal. Right. And uh, you know, I'd worked for you know a year and a half all the way up the chain to finally get this meeting with the member of Congress and try and change his mind and. They told me, you know, his brother was a neurologist and, you know, he was going to do whatever his brother said, told him to do on this issue. And I had plans to, you know, lobby his brother and right. try and, you know, <laughs> like camp out in front of his medical practice yeah. in uh, New Jersey. And uh, at the end of the meeting, he chased me outside uh, and he asked me, you know, like as a, as a youth activist, because uh, this was back in like 2004, he said, you know, um, why do you care about medical marijuana? Why is this issue important to you? And I told him, you know, I said, I don't think you have a lot of really good reasons to try and tell adolescents why they shouldn't consume cannabis, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, most people are just not getting arrested most of the times that they're smoking. Right. And, you know, and the over, as we pointed out earlier, you know, the, the overt police enforcement, you know, disproportionately falls on, you know, young men of color, you know, yep. in most places. And so, I, you know, I looked at him and I said, you don't really have a lot of good reasons to tell a young person not to use cannabis. But the one really good reason is that it is a medicine. And that if they don't need it now at this stage in their life, that maybe waiting until you're at a stage where you do need it, where you've been traumatized or mm -hmm. where you are recovering from, you know, the trauma or toxicity of chemotherapy, that waiting until you need the medicine is mm -hmm. probably the only good argument. I, I, I think that, you know, an adolescent can really hear and go, you know what? Uh, yes, I'm enjoying this on the weekends with my friends at this party, but maybe, you know, if I'm seeing my use become more regular – I can pump the brakes a little bit because I have a good reason because getting arrested just isn't going to be that right, reason. Right, mm. right. Yeah. yeah. When I was a, a kid. Especially once it's yeah, legal. 
I used to just associate cannabis use with old people, and my friends in high school were like, let's use cannabis. I was like, isn't that something old people do? <laughs> I mean, that's what's happening now. You know, like, it's not I cool. Know. Youth use is down. And, I mean, I'll be honest with you. You know, I'm a little bit concerned that we're going to look back in 20 years and go, you know, wouldn't it have been nice when, you know, a whole generation of adolescents just used cannabis as their way of, you know, displaying their rebelliousness and, right. you know, the the, uh, the independence that comes with, you know, maturity <laughs> and human development. But now uh, they got and a, now they're going to be like, look at all these pills I just pilfered. And, like, <laughs> watch me smoke this new e-cigarette on YouTube or like oh crazy gosh. nonsense, high risk behavior. Oh. But, you know, I, I, I just find even in my practice, there are a lot of... Um, youth who are coming in talking about using cannabis to to mitigate their anxieties sure. to, to work with their moods and i'm so glad that we create or i created a practice because i own a really large practice in the mid-atlantic and we see like sixteen thousand patient visits a year and i'm glad that I, i've really worked hard to have my clinicians really be cannabis aware and understand mm-hmm. kind of the role that cannabis can play because it's a compound it's not just one drug you know what i mean and and so we have all the times now we've noticed that our younger patients feel so much more comfortable talking about this yeah and that's a great opportunity and i don't understand clinicians who don't want to talk about this I mean, I don't either. And as an adolescent who went through, yeah. um, you know, twice with, uh, I got caught in high school a couple times, and uh, both times I had to kind of go see somebody yeah. and talk yeah. about it. And one guy's background was totally twelve step, and he had the oh, serenity absolutely. prayer, you know, yeah. up. And I remember, you know, like he uh, caused many issues with, uh, you know, doctor patient confidentiality because he went and told my mother afterwards. You know, I was like Daniel. Uh, he, he thinks all, you know, marijuana is innocuous. He believes all these studies from normal. As if, like, normal was, like, the worst thing that he could think of, the boogeyman of all, you know, bad cannabis science and everything that he'd yeah. been trained and read. And then I went to, a you know, a, a different clinician later on who was a, more of a client-centered therapist. Yeah. And the difference in just, you know, the ability to speak freely right. and to be supported just as, you know, I mean, adolescence is hard for, you know, most people. And, right. um, you know, that, that, that's an – just – I think just being heard in general, you know, right. is an important thing for young people, for all people. But. And that's really like one of my goals professionally is to teach other mental health clinicians about what it, what cannabis is and what it isn't. Because there's such, you know, wrong information out there about from the clinicians about right. what it can do from a mental health perspective. And that's what when Jayhan and I started out, uh, started up the institute, that was one of my main goals is that we really need to be targeting clinicians to teach them what does, what do the studies say? Yeah. You know, and, you mean and, once uh, Julie Holland published her book, it wasn't all hunky dory, and <laughs> right, everybody read it, and that right. was that. And, uh, right. I, think, I, I mean, uh, I did this study this past summer or this past spring on with mental health clinicians, and we just got it funded, and it's expanding worldwide uh, at NYU. But we're actually we asked in the pilot the questions about you know what were their knowledge and attitudes around it, and granted it was a small sample size because it was a pilot, but it was still significant. And what we found, what I found was that people who had actually used used cannabis in the past were more likely to recommend it because they knew that it wasn't anything that people who had never used it. And another thing we found, too, was that for people who were like bachelor's level therapists, and usually those are CADC, so like certified alcohol mm-hmm. and drug counselors, um, are those they, still mostly people in recovery themselves who came yeah, through uh, and who came through programs? 12-step programs, mm-hmm. yes, that they were 
you know, they basically obviously were completely against it and demonized it and, and, and were more associated with finding, uh, with believing the gateway theory and stuff like that than people who've actually been educated and who have worked more of that harm reduction strategy. Because I think the whole strategy for substance use is just ridiculous. It's- yeah. And I mean, listen, if the gateway narrative is your, you know, your oh. truth and your story, if you began, you know, with nicotine and alcohol and proceeded to cannabis and all the other drugs, then, you know, like, <laughs> right. you choose that one point in time right. to decide that, you know, it's the cannabis and not the, uh, you know, not the nicotine. Yeah, or the, you know, the perfumes in the laundry detergent your mom used. I mean, whatever the the arbitrary, yeah, yeah, Yeah. you know, instance that definitely this is the causal effect of everything that happened, you know. Right, yeah. Um, Everything's multifactorial. Right. Well, I'd like to transition to a segment. Um, There's three kind of issues I'd like to talk about, some of it related to what we already talked about. I like to call it what's working and what's not working. (laughs) 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 There's three, three things that have come up, and... Um, we can, we can, you guys can choose where we go with it. One is what the heck is going on in Oregon? Is this, is the program working in Oregon? Is it not? Um, there's lots of mixed results with regulators. Are they doing their job there? Are the labs functioning? Does, do we need to scrap the program and start or is, is it salvageable? The other one is a little bit more tricky, but it's opioid use disorder as a qualifying condition. The data coming out about this is mixed. New Jersey, this has not had an impact on the state's morbidity with opioids, but maybe it's because there isn't enough access, right? People still have to drive hours to get access to cannabis if they're a patient in New Jersey in some places. There simply isn't enough dispensaries for the number of patients they have, it sounds like. So, you know, there could be some issues there. The other is this week CBD has had an extremely bad hair day. Uh, <laughs> banned in New York, Ohio, Florida, Texas, Maine, and Oregon – products coming off the shelves. Um, Spain and Austria have also banned them, and we found out that eight states have bans on hemp cultivation of any kind, including Idaho and Oklahoma, which is where people got busted. So, um, you know, we could start simply, you know, um, for those, you know, there might be some people listening who aren't familiar with the nuances of cannabis programs. And one of the ways I've been thinking about cannabis programs to wrap my head around what's going on, like, you know, imagine you lived in a big house, right? And you had lots of roommates. And one of them kept bringing people home to try edibles for the first time, like complete strangers. Eventually, you might want to set some guidelines um, or something like that. Um, like, hey, only give them one brownie a night the first time. Don't leave them unsupervised. I don't know. Maybe it's a bad analogy. <laughs> Wait, so are <laughs> you saying in analogy. New York that they've outlawed all CBD or just CBD edibles? So um, the, the cannabidiol crackdown in um, New York basically happened first the top-selling item at the Fat Cat Kitchen. It was a cookie <laughs> packed with chocolate chunks, dusted with salt flakes, and infused with stylish cannabis derivative cannabidiol. Um, that sounds delicious except for the CBD. Yeah. So the Department right? of Health and Mental Hygiene showed up um, and was like looking at their supply of CBD baked goods. It's unclear what happened, but apparently there was a conversation and I imagine it's something like this. What's this? It's from cannabis. Is it? What do you mean it's from cannabis? It's legal. Where do you get it from? We don't know. Or, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Um, but I they, mean, the health department in New York is pretty notorious about cracking down last, you know, whatever the fad additive is. Last year, it was uh, activated charcoal. And so, you know, there was activated charcoal ice cream. Ice cream yeah, yeah, there was, you know, all these different additives making, you know, your noodles, you know, jet black or whatever. Right. And it's like activated charcoal is not on the approved list of things that you can add into foods. And so uh, 
<laughs> you know that's uh, you know that that came off the menu. I all those menus in the trendy restaurants and CBD went on, and so, CBD is going to come off. And uh, I don't know what the next thing is. You know, not acai berries or goji berries or something, but <laughs> yeah, something so similar. It was deemed as not being a safe. Is elderberry food cool, or is that not like yeah. a cool name because it's got elder? elder but what about it. if you buy your CBD latte like in Jersey and take the path train over to Manhattan? You're still cool, right? Like. <laughs> You're importing. You're in, or is that... Well, I mean, not you know, maybe New York, New Jersey, but probably not like Oregon, the Idaho border. Yeah, um, yeah, that's that is it's, it's really kind of crazy at a time when international agencies are saying don't control this substance, deschedule it, and we see states banning its cultivation, or we see the Department of Health. Um, saying you can't sell these products. Well, well okay. So let's well, they just be... say you can't sell the edible products. Right, you can still use topicals. Products. You can still use, you know, uh, you can still smoke the, the flour. The... You can still use the oils. I think well, there's been storefronts that have closed too that are CBD storefronts as well. Right, I... because they've probably been, you know, I mean, oh, listen, I see CBD they... edible products in bodegas, you know, up yeah. and down Manhattan. I mean, they're yeah. in like hardware stores. It's, you, right. you, they're everywhere, everywhere. here. <laughs> you know, so it's like, and yeah, nobody knows where they got them from, but they're selling. So retailers are selling. And but let's be fair here, Jehan. You and I wrote a consumer warning based on the last on that study this past winter. So or fall. yeah, they found. Because, uh, so is this all your fault? So <laughs> yeah. no, well, no, it was it was with a very specific <laughs> thing, right. and the way that the owner or representative of the company handled it was so dismissive. It was scary. Um, it, basically, there were these vape cartridges that were found to have not only um, an opioid derivative in them, but also synthetic cannabinoids, but marketed as like pure CBD oil. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so people were shown up to the emergency room with them, and the owner's like, oh, someone must be spiking them into our samples right. somewhere. It just happens to be every sample that was tested. Uh, and I also have zero, you know, uh, product liability uh, <laughs> controls. Yeah, right, I mean, right, right. That's how most of these fly by night businesses are operating and these see, days. And to me, this is like the greatest reason why we need to be legalizing it because yeah. we need to be able to regulate it. And I think my understanding of what happened in New York is that there there's a concern of where are people getting the CBD and how is it being used. I mean, yeah. I have to admit. I'm one of those obnoxious people that when I walk by my coffee shop and I see CBD stuff, I just roll my eyes because yeah, I'm like, yeah, whatever. It's a $15, I you know, know, I know this is bullshit. novelty item. Right, right. But then I'm like, as a clinician who I know that my patients are wanting to use CBD, I want them to use products that I know are going to actually have what, it, right, what right. what's in it. And well, so I mean, that's, that's where I'm very torn with that. Yeah, I mean, the New York Attorney General's office went into, you know, all these major over-the-counter, right. you know, herbal, supplemental, you know, things and found that, you know, it was mostly sawdust when it was supposed to be saw palmetto, right? Right. Like, you know, so it, it, across a range of products, not just Abs- in the cannabis absolutely. space, are consumers absolutely. not aware, you know, we hear the study, you know, at least once a year you get that, uh, is the fish that you're eating really the fish really you think it fish, is? Or, yeah. you know, is some cheaper cut of fish being substituted for, right. you know, snapper or whatever it is? Right. And so, yeah, it's a, I, I think you're going to definitely see that moving forward in the cannabis space. Right. So, so how can we – So do you think it's it's going to work to improve the CBD part of the cannabis industry by having these bans in place and kind of clearing off the shelves from products of unknown provenances? Or is it like – Just bullshit. I mean, I don't know if you're going to start to see, you know, a bunch of underground CBD uh, retailers <laughs> popping up. You Speakeasies. Know, I mean, just, you know, like the, that your neighborhood underground cannabis oh. dealer is going to, you know, start being like, hey, listen, man, I got this really uh, 
non-psychoactive strain also you could totally buy and uh, you know cost you extra money because it doesn't get you high um I, you know we'll see i mean and it's interesting but like you know listen in new york you have those um colorfully wrapped vans that um you know purport to sell an edible product and right. then when you press them they'll say that there's cbd in there yeah. if uh this band puts those vans out of business uh, I think, you know, there's a little bit of nanny stating, but occasionally uh, the nanny state gets one or two bad apples out of the room. <laughs> and those vans drive me insane. You Wait, talk about they're uh, not real? Oh, my gosh. I've seen people, <laughs> you know, take out good money right in front of a right. uh, NYPD officer parked right behind the right. van thinking that they're going to spend $20 on a brownie. And that's the most expensive brownie you've ever eaten that right. did not get did you not high. Did get you high. <laughs> Didn't work at all. Um. <laughs> I mean, consumer fraud is a big problem, right? And, like, yeah. you know, how we prevent this moving forward is a really interesting question because, you know, we can standardize the manufacturing processes. We can create, you know, the testing to make sure the batches are what they say they are. Right. But, you know, counterfeiting is always going to be a problem and That's it's going to become a greater problem, you know, moving forward. And Another great argument for regulating it. Um, you know, there are licenses available that you can apply for to grow hemp and produce CBD-derived products, but... It's not widely accessible. I well, think, maybe but... part of this is also ask, telling our, you know, the listeners or anyone that we deal with is know your product. Do some research to see if it's, you I know. talked to a QC guy, works for a cannabis consulting company yeah. for good manufacturing practices. And he was like, oh, thank goodness. It was like unfair to people who have invested so much into cannabis licenses and they have to produce it all in state to sell it. Meanwhile, other people can buy it from anywhere online and it shows up in a bucket, you know, and... And wasn't there that guy, uh, where was he from, the truck driver who had oh, been using CBD? Yes, there was a, another another bad hair day for CBD was the truck driver. Now, it was a, for a federal company, um, took, I believe it was like a Dixie Elixir licensed product and failed a urine test for marijuana metabolites and lost his like 200000 no, commercial driver's license. Yeah, yeah $200,000 a year job. Um, for that, and he's now they're now suing. I think the... we need to change our jobs. Yeah, it'd be truck drivers <laughs> for two hundred thousand dollars. I don't know, man. You ever sat in a car for that long? Long haul trucking is not for the uh, faint of heart. That is a rough on the body lifestyle. Uh, I wouldn't. I mean, two hundred grand is a lot, but yeah, you could do a lot of. You could get through a lot of audiobooks. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of podcasts in the, uh, yeah. on the on the road. Maybe there's some listening to us now. Yeah. If you really do make two hundred thousand dollars driving a truck, let us know. Hey, uh, we support all our Teamster listeners. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, you know, the other thing, speaking of regulations in nanny states, you know, one of the things that um, some groups have been critical of is, is Oregon. They're making uh, reports about only a few percent of the retail stores, maybe a, a third uh, or close to half of the growers have been expected, inspected for molds, metals, bacteria, um, you know. Is this really – I mean, we're not seeing exceptionally high – people getting lung infections from bacteria in Oregon or heavy metal poisonings yet. But do you think it just needs to give the program more time for it to work? Should they get more resources or does something have to change there? Well, I think the funding mechanism in Oregon is what's off, right? Like, uh, yeah. you know, everybody got uh, their hands into the pool of money for cannabis except for the Oregon Liquor Control uh, and, you know, Oregon Liquor and Cannabis Control Commission, whatever it's called, the OLCC. Um it's it, without a, you know an appropriate. I mean, they gave it. They they did both 
obstinance. They gave out you know an unlimited number of licenses for producers and did not find ways to staff and fund uh, you know the inspector regime. And so you know you probably have to find a balance. And you know the, the fallout from an unlimited number of producers is great for consumers in Oregon, right? Like falling prices to what cannabis ought to cost a consumer is nice. Unfortunately, most of these producers invested a ton of money yeah. on dreams of, you know, making millions in the future and finding out that cannabis doesn't in fact change capitalism. Capitalism is running roughshod over a lot of people who did not, you know, adequately find how they were going to survive if the price dropped significantly. And right. probably the state too. They invested a lot into infrastructure and bills and legislation I mean, and not now, enough. And now they're like give out unlimited licenses. Probably the rev tax revenues probably start to drop since the price has dropped as well. Yeah, I mean all those projections I think generally I mean I say this about, you know, but both the you know Canadian stock market uh, and you know all these American businesses, their projections are wildly inflated, right. based on numbers from the underground economy back when cannabis you know stayed stable at sixty dollars an eighth in the street for you know decades, belying any other you know right. supply and demand considerations because it was an underground product and consumers are comfortable paying at that price point. But there's no reason to, and they're certainly not going to pay over that price point with added taxes right. when they could continue to go buy from their, you know, community right. uh, underground drug dealer to, uh, you know, you, you know, it's funny that you bring up, you know, n- nobody's dying of heavy metal toxicity because people have been consuming untested and unregulated cannabis for decades with, you know, only the side effects and problems that we've been seeing in the ER. So the idea that, you know, all of a sudden people who have been growing (laughs) using, you know, disproportionate amounts of pesticides or something are going to be showing up like they haven't been doing this, you know, forever. Yeah, for generations. I mean, if you're growing in places and you got a mildew or, you know, a mite problem, you know, I don't – even ethical growers I know don't have a problem with making sure that, you know, they still have a crop at the end of their, you know, grow season. Right. No, it's it's true. It's true. Um (laughs) <laughs> but so, you know, I don't think the solution is, uh, like Project Sam says, an immediate moratorium on marijuana sales in the well, state Project of Oregon. Project Sam's just ridiculous. We need to have a showdown with them here. Um, Do you think we could get them to come in? If you guys can get Kevin. I mean, I've seen Kevin <laughs> debate. It's not. Eh. I've met him a couple times. There was one time where he, we were on a conference call and uh, someone forced him to say happy birthday to me because it was on my birthday. <laughs> uh-uh, really? Yeah. And did was, he? Well, he, he was like waiting in line to board an airport and it was just like, happy birthday, Jayhan. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I ran into him at the UN when we were doing some work there and... He actually was very friendly and said that he'd like to talk and that we would probably agree on more than we would differ. You know, I don't think that's not true, right? I think actually if Kevin could, you know, realize that – first of all, Kevin's a careerist, right? He's doing this because it's a good gig. I mean I think he also is a true believer and really believes the nonsense that he spews. But being the only prohibitionist of his generation is not a bad position to be in when you're looking for a job. You're the favored son. You got – you know, you turned an internship uh, at ONDCP into a career there, into a you know Fulbright or a Marshall scholarship or you know whatever he used to get his uh, you know his PhD, which I used air quotes there because I don't you know really believe in <laughs> Kevin's credentials, but uh, oh, you know, but but the idea of preventing you know big tobacco and big alcohol from entering the cannabis industry actually is supported by a lot of legalizers I know who would love to see this industry continue yeah. as a mom and pop operation for right. everybody. Um, Unfortunately, you know, the drawback of that, as we're seeing in Oregon, is that if you're going to have, you know, tens of thousands of licensed producers and retailers, then they need to, you know, 
have enough inspectors to come in and make sure that people are doing business as they should because as a, I've experienced as a cannabis retailer at a dispensary in California, there are a lot of unscrupulous business owners in the right. space. Right. Yeah. Right. As you mentioned, whether it's fish or CBD, there's <laughs> people will take shortcuts. I mean, even in, in ancient Roman times, they had to start publishing monographs about plants because people would just show up with like, oh, yeah, that's uh, lavender. <laughs> it's purple. I mean, yeah, <laughs> people do have got purple. Um, man, the, you know, but like you, you said, you know, a lot of it is consumer education, right? You know, right. if consumers aren't going to demand that they know their farmer, that they understand the provenance of where their products came from, that they, you know, care about supply lines. I mean, you know, we keep bringing this back to seafood, but there are people who make sure that the fish they eat is harvested from a sustainable, right. you know, fishery and that, you know, those waters are protected. And there are people who go, oh, look, cheap shrimp. Right. You no, know, right. who cares how they got here? Right. Right. <laughs> I mean, shrimp are delicious, but. So yeah, they are. You know. Mystery shrimp. Um, <laughs> this shrimp isn't frozen. <laughs> I love shrimp. Well. Because you want to know that. <laughs> well, I appreciate you guys' thoughts on Oregon. You know, I, I'm, I'm wondering if other states are just being a little more quiet about this. Um, and it kind of maybe explains why other states have been reluctant, like Pennsylvania has been reluctant to jump into legalization because their other operators aren't even up and running yet, like the entire right. licensed state. And so maybe that's part of it is having those trained inspectors because I have trained cannabis inspectors in the past. And a lot of them come from a law enforcement background. Um, former military police. A lot of the people work for the cannabis programs. So and that was my dream, man. Like the future of employment for all these, you know, cowboy drug warrior. Like kicked down the door is just like a clipboard and a pen, being like, <laughs> and I, I took out my my tape measure and I can see that this is not the proper width away from the wall. So <laughs> negative, you know. But this is what you want in health inspectors, right? You want to make sure that the kitchens well, are being. I had cleaned, a similar yeah. experience to that. I was uh, I worked when I was an undergrad and I was doing had like I was in like five billion things um one of them was working at a dispensary one of the first licensed dispensaries in california uh, and i got let go for being late and then i showed up a couple years later as a inspector for their <laughs> compliance. And i was like so what is your employee retention policy <laughs> but uh, looking at trading records and stuff but it you know it a lot of – in that role that I did for, for about five years of, of assisting regulators with inspecting and also doing voluntary compliance, I found that most companies were dying for a critique of what they were doing, of how they could improve things. Right. And if they don't have to pay $10,000 for a consultant to come in and yeah. you know, tell them and if you can get that. I mean, listen, you know, the American business model is adversarial. It's not yeah. cooperative. And so the idea that somebody would come in and actually have your best interest in heart as a business and that consumers and business owners – don't necessarily have to be at loggerheads over, you know, providing high quality, you know, products at right. low prices. Uh, those should be, you know, in everybody's interest. But there were some times when I was scared for my life, though, and I was glad I showed up instead of the official state inspector for their practice run. Like, you know, just huge tanks of ethanol stored next to ovens. They're like, don't worry, the oven's not plugged in right now. <laughs> They're like, why are you turning pale? And I was like, where's the emergency exit? Oh, we don't have one. Uh, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's your cutout of your figure you make as you go through the door. Don't worry, the butane <laughs> blast will push you all the way through. <laughs> just be sure to put your arms behind your back. <laughs> but, but, you know, but you get snowblind with anything you do, I think. You know, if you're... If you're in a total like gray area and no one's ever showed you to say, hey, you know, after you drop a knife on the floor at the butcher shop, you should wash it. Like you might just be in a daze when you're like working through the job, you know, high production, 
lot of pressure to perform as you said you don't want to have you don't want to lose a crop at the end um you know with cannabis but I, I think yeah the solution with Oregon is is investing more heavily in um the the liquor control board but also why not open it up to third parties to offer some sort of certification or something that the departments of of health and the liquor control board can recognize to help these places cuz i don't think it's like these businesses don't want a health inspector to show up right well, I, I mean, obviously, the ones that are spending the time and effort to comply and to produce it, you know, the standards that best practices have established, you know, want to be rewarded for that, right? Restaurants that, you know, maintain a clean environment want that A grade from the health mm-hmm. inspector, and they want their competitors to be known as a B or C police. Right. Um, it's just not clear to me that consumers care, honestly, you know, that even... Care. You'll care I mean, when you want to return it, and they're like... <laughs> Well, wait, I mean, I wait, think I think so there are, are people who I think you... there are people who are immune compromised who want to make yeah. sure that their products are clean. But I also think you know most consumers, you know, not just in cannabis, user. are just price sensitive. Right. Mm. You know, I mean, I, I don't think that I don't think cannabis is going to is certainly you know unique to you know. There's a standard where people will you know drop below a certain price point and the quality goes too far down and they will you know spend extra mm. money. But you know, th- this is true of a loaf of bread as it is you know a six pack of beer as it is. You know the weed that they smoke. I, I mean, mean, it also depends on what you're doing with it. Like, if I'm making a grilled cheese, I'm probably just going to get like some Wonder Bread. But if I'm making a nice BLT, probably go with some sourdough or some other really nice. <laughs> you know, use a nice shibata. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, like, yeah, if you're if you're going to be making edibles or tinctures and stuff, you might go. You know, I don't need this. You know, the the cannabis that looks amazing, like Moon Rocks or something like that. You. <laughs> gimmick, gimmick, uh, cannabis gimmicks. So, uh, I mean, I mean, yeah. listen. On the one hand, you're not going to get rid of any kind of gimmicks, right? And everybody's looking for a competitive edge in the marketplace. But uh, man, moon rocks. It's <laughs> the things, the things people will sell these days. I, you know, God bless yeah. everybody. What's involved the weirdest in that, thing uh, you've ever seen? Or just in the like last week or two? Yeah, you okay. could say I last, mean, yeah. I, I, I don't know. You know. What is something? What about this? Maybe phrase it a little bit like, "What's something weird you experienced doing being you and in the cannabis space?" Well, I mean, product-wise, the most one of the most unique uh, when I worked at the dispensary was beef jerky, and uh, there was a company that sold a medicated beef jerky, and it was just like one strip, you know, for ten dollars, and you know, you really couldn't taste the medicine in there, which was pretty nice. And uh, but in very fine print on the label was, you know, like, may take up to two hours, which I guess is what they say on all edibles. But, you know, right. nobody really thinks it takes two hours for, like, the brownie to hit. Right. But that, like, chewed up wad of beef really does just kind of sit in your stomach for two hours. <laughs> and that's a long enough time if you're getting out of work to forget that you ate it. Uh, and then when you've had a beer or two and you're walking home and you're like, why do I feel like I just can't handle my beer? I want to get and some like, pizza. Oh, man. <laughs> um, but I don't know. You know, listen, I, you know, as an activist, we used to say, you know, we go to these events and, you know, more of the cannabis cultural spaces and say, you know, like, oh, man, we can't wait till marijuana is legal so we never have to see some of these people ever again. <laughs> um, oh, my gosh. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the reality is, is that, you know, a lot of the progress that we've had politically is because of the cultural shifts, right? right. It's not because more people are using cannabis, right. even though, you know, on some of the margins and some of right. the, you know, older populations, that's true. But, uh you know, it's 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 because, you know, millennial attitudes and people who have experience, like you were saying, and clinicians, mm-hmm. you know, people who have experience with cannabis just have the appropriate attitude towards it. Right. It was people who, you know, believe the mythical uh, reefer madness creature 
uh, and they've never experienced it themselves, they're just going to continue to believe that myth. Right. So, right. Um, you know, does Oregon, does Kevin Wright, does Oregon need to stop everything they're doing? No, I don't think Kevin's been right. Even even when Kevin is right, it's because he's a broken clock, not because uh, <laughs> you know Kevin's actually hey. got it right. Hey, yeah, I, you, you sound like you really like Kevin. You know, Kevin and I we're peers, right? Um, Kevin. We, you know, he's he's just a few months older than I am, but you know, we started Students for Sensible Drug Policy at the same time as he was oh, an undergrad at uh, UC Berkeley, and he started Students for Drug Free Berkeley. Uh, he was the only one, and um, <laughs> but, must have been know. a really great when he got up there on the steps to speak. <laughs> oh yeah, um, but you know, listen, you know, being the being a vocal anti-drug student in Berkeley, California, in the mid to late nineties. Um, gets you to the attention of the chancellor and gets you the spot as the student representative on the board of regents, which but is a great also, position to be. But it also says to, a lot about your personality. Too. Oh, I don't think Kevin had a lot of friends that he's still in <laughs> touch with from his undergraduate <laughs> years. What um, would you do with someone like Kevin? Hang around and not have a beer? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> or like, I mean, it just, it just I'm, I'm sure see, he's got is, some interest in something. This is where the therapist in me comes in, and I'm like, hmm, I want to know where. What is his family background? Like? It's probably like, um, like, 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 like in the Simpsons, when like I could tell you a lot about it, but when Ned Flanders Flanders is such a square in the Simpsons because his parents were beatniks and called him a square (laughs) for like spilled ink on the poem. We've tried nothing, and we're all out of ideas. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe Kevin Sabet just needs the spanking protocol of 1951. (laughs) If Kevin starts saying diddly for every. And, and you oh, know, we'll, we'll, we'll know it works. But he has a he does have a friend now. He does have the sci-fi writer Alex uh, Berenson. Oh, oh yeah. God. And I've been trying to come up with a way to describe the, their repetitive arguments about the link between cannabis. And at first, I thought wrong. Well, <laughs> but I thought Berenson's psychosis when you're obsessed with uh, links and associations being causative. I thought that like that might be something like that. But I just thought it's, it's in general, it's just science abuse, science abusers. Yeah, I mean, Gladwell, it, you know, if it was just Berenson, I don't know that it would have had the staying power. It was really the Gladwell piece in the New Yorker elevating. I mean, because Berenson's columns in the Washington or the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times were really just, you know, hey, I've got a book out, come buy my book. But you put that Malcolm Gladwell bad science imprimatur on, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. on top of it, and now you've got you know like senators like Dick Durbin repeating right. the Gladwell article yeah. to right. people. We don't know much about THC except it's been FDA approved and studied more than garlic. Like, <laughs> you know, I mean, listen, uh, Richard Burr, the senator from North Carolina, went on the floor of the Senate last week and talked about how you know band aids are more studied than uh, cannabis and. I did a quick search. You search Band-Aid and PubMed, and there's like 1,600 studies that come up, and most of them are using Band-Aid as like the colloquial, like, right. is this a Band-Aid solution to <laughs> not like, does the actual, you know, sterile Band-Aid. adhesive strip do something? <laughs> um, and, you know, there's 30,000 studies that mention marijuana and another 20,000 that mention cannabis. It's, right. you know, those absurd. Those, does that just fit in the search results? Right. I mean, right. it's just the idea that, you know, this isn't a studied product. I mean, listen, I'm all for more studies and I'm all for, you know, Gladwell, right. the opening of his piece about, you know, we don't know a lot of these things wasn't wrong. But Gladwell's well, the guy that talked about the 10,000 hours to be an expert, well, right? Listen, Do you really a, think a, he uh, spent 10,000 oh, hours before he wrote that? Right. I doubt it. I mean, the 10,000 hours <laughs> thing is a bad statistic also but it's just like Gladwell is just he's bad at science it's he's very entertaining storyteller but he is very very bad at science yes. and he doesn't care you know he's totally content he to tell 
I mean, you can't argue with a, he is with a lot at, of book sales. Well, yeah. you know, I, you got a yeah, good point. Can, so but, here's here's something <laughs> from that, that article. And I think it sums up how they like to confuse us. Because he talks about the haze of uncertainty continues. Does the use of cannabis increase the likelihood of a fatal car accident? Yes. By how much? Unclear. Does it affect motivation and cognition? Hard to say. Probably. Does it affect <laughs> employment prospects? Probably. Will it impair academic achievement? academic achievement limited evidence now limited evidence probably probably unclear uncertainty these are all important statistical definitions meaning no association <laughs> right, right? And so right so he pulls that right out of the national academy's report they say there it's uncertain and there's uncertainty here it's like yeah because it's no different than random chance and i think he that's a big thing of science abuse is like when it's you know it definitely increases it but it's unclear by how much it's like well if it clearly increases it there should be there a should be some five indication. maybe like i mean also i mean most of these assertions right whether it's the you know schizophrenic link without looking at which direction it goes oh, or yeah. the mm-hmm. you know yep. I, I mean any of these that uh, studies that just have never been duplicated right, right? So, and so it you know it gets a sexy headline in the press you know so does the super bowl banning a cannabis right. ad right anything for the free media and then the next day you know, uh, all the activists are left with the fallout mm-hmm. when the, you know, elected officials and the policy leaders. I mean, I guarantee you, you know, every staffer in Senator Durbin's office has now read that Gladwell article. Right. And the next time, you know, the folks from Illinois Normal go in to lobby his office about, you know, the Marijuana Justice Act in the Senate, mm-hmm. you know, he's going to be more recalcitrant. And that's right. a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, bad science has consequences for bad policy. Right. So I, I looked up. Um, on, on PubMed and other sources, what else is strongly like linked and well studied? And I talked about this a little bit on the last show, but what is strongly linked with violent crime and mental illness? And I came up with like about a couple of things. Uh, some of my favorite uh, include increases in violent crime are associated with high blood pressure. Yes. That's that's a much stronger... Isn't forest fires one yeah, of them? Yeah, smoke from wildfires are associated with increases in violent crime. All of these make perfect sense to me. <laughs> Getting A grades in school are associated with an incre- increased risk of developing bipolar disorder. Um, this one makes sense. Perhaps mm. increases in violent crime are associated with increased access to liquor based on the number of liquor stores and how late they're open in different areas. Uh, increases in violence are associated with gentrification. Um, lead exposure is also show- associated with an increase in violent crime. I mean, that one's real, though, right? Like, yes. The lead one is actually well, the all, cause of all, all, all of these are studies with data to back it up and statistics. <laughs> wait, because we talked about Greer eating lead paint chips. Yeah, as a kid. <laughs> well, I mean, they were the most delicious paint chips. He did say <laughs> so, that. I'm, I'm our, kidding, uh, but I'm sure it's true. Our co-host who couldn't be here, uh, Greer Barnes, um, he's on HBO Greer. Crashing. He's open for Dave Chappelle. He's worked on Chappelle show. He, we were reading these statistics, and he's like, man, marijuana <laughs> – <laughs> and violence. I can't remember how many people I've killed. <laughs> <laughs> so Alex Berenson's head just exploded. <laughs> I know. We hope to get him on here. I think. Day. I think the biggest omission by Gladwell and Berenson, and I've went through Berenson's book. Um, no mention ever of THC being FDA approved. And I feel like that changes their entire discussion about we need to do studies on pharmacokinetics, we need to know this, we need to know that. If the pure ingredient that's of devil's lettuce is FDA approved, it really, for me, doesn't, like, their whole argument doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, it's the same thing, you know, like Senator Durbin is, you know, a, a, a formidable advocate for medical cannabis patients. Totally cool with, you know, the sick and most vulnerable amongst us being exposed to cannabis, but a healthy adult? 
awful. That would have terrible consequences for society. At Only large. the most brittle people should have access to this neurotoxic compound. <laughs> well, the, the, my the one of the worst things are the like the extrapolations and analogy they use. Gladwell uses this in the New Yorker piece. Compares cannabis to the once extraordinarily lethal innovation of the automobile that has been gradually tamed in its course. And I think there is a stark contrast between a non-toxic substance and flying down the road in like a metal box. Like imagine if I had an Iron Man suit, right? You'd hope to God that the government could regulate flying around in a metal murder suit. But to like compare something like that with no regulations at the time, it was like no speed limits, no pedestrian rights. Like comparing that to Cannabis? I'm just thinking, like, so, you know, the term jaywalking, uh, yeah. <laughs> but this was invented by the automobile industry to put the blame on pedestrians, not on vehicles for, you know, pedestrian vehicle accidents, right? <laughs> right. This is a total, you know, industry creation. So now I'm wondering, like, what would be the cannabis equivalent of, you know, the jaywalking? Like, hey, man, it's not the fault at all of the cannabis, you know, producers or consumers. It's the fault of everybody else who got in the way. <laughs> it's the fault of Humphrey Bogart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, they, uh, <laughs> right, right. It's not our fault. They're living near our cannabis cultivation site. <laughs> or like, I mean, you know, there's something to that of these Rico suits and people who are suing because, you know, the smell yeah. from their, uh, the grow ops is, you know, one of the, uh, up in Canada, um, you know, one of the neighbors was complaining that the smell in the summertime from the grow goes down there. And they, I think the producer, one of the owners of the company was just like, man, you know, this used to produce like like a methane and you know like like some like lard factory like like, like rendering plant like yeah just like things that have like like oh this whole area is like an industrial part of Ontario. And the last thing I want to smell is beta crophylline, which is found on every plant. <laughs> you know, and listen, I don't, I don't mean to you know dismiss because yeah. obviously cannabis is pungent and a lot of it you know if you don't Especially enjoy if you're that aroma. Manufacturing it, yeah. Or I mean, it. you know, like I enjoy the smell of cannabis flowers, smell, but not yeah. everybody does, and. Um, um, you know, like, but you're right. Like, hey, listen, like, of all the things that you might be able to smell, you're happy for the jobs in your community, but, you know, nobody wants to smell the, you know, the cookies being made. <laughs> right. right. Well, I grew up I grew up down from a Nabisco factory. Well, oh, did you? I think it's important to point out, though, that, you know, Gladwell shows his hand when discussing this stuff, and as does Berenson, they call it a worst case scenario. And I was like, yeah, I can't imagine a, a more worst case fictional scenario, right? That's what a scenario is. If certain things were not true or certain outcomes were changed, right? Then the most widely consumed illicit substance on the planet being detrimental to people's mental health. That would be a worst case scenario. Like, you know, another worst case scenario I like to, you know, think about, there's a TV show about is what if the Nazis won World War II? Like, that's a worst case scenario. Uh, what if they have a moon base? That's a worst right. case scenario. Um, so there's lots, you know, it it's really is amazing how this worst case scenario, this sort of hypothesis, you know, got out of hand. Um, but, you know, Jan, you've mentioned before how you think that stuff like this is a great argument <laughs> for legalization. You mentioned it with actually. the CB stuff. Why do you think Berenson's book is the one of the best arguments for uh, legalization? Because I think it highlights basically a lot of different things. One is that Berenson's book talks about cannabis as if it's just one little, that it's one medication and it's not. It's it's um, composed of many different cannabinoids and we can't be saying, we can't say that all cannabis is the same. So to me, I think this, this justifies why we need to be studying this more at uh, the chemovar level mm -hmm. and why we need to be 
regulating this so that people know exactly what they're getting so that they can actually have medicines that are going to be effective for the the issues that they're wanting to treat. And And I think that is absolutely true about prescribed pharmaceutical drugs as well, and probably almost any commodity you can mention, bacon, whiskey, carbohydrates, fats, like you're going to want to know what's actually in there, where it was produced. And I, I I just, you know, have such an issue with that book just because it's really preying on a lot of fears of parents and people when they aren't educated. And that's where I really hope that this podcast, we can start having more sane conversations around cannabis because, you know, I'm kind of, I'm worried about all of it, to be honest with you. I'm worried about big tobacco and big, you know, and alcohol Mm -hmm. getting into it. I'm worried about the role of capitalism in it Mm -hmm. and how it's becoming so, you know, how it's so cutthroat. And and Greer was like really upset about big tobacco, big big alcohol getting in there. And we've talked about this before, Dan, on your, on your podcast, you know, I I see pluses and minuses, you know, I have a bias because I got a tobacco grant to study cannabis in grad school from the state of Pennsylvania, from the tax revenue on Tobacco. So for me, I was like, well, this doesn't seem so bad as a broke ass grad student making 18000 a year. I'm like, great, I can stay in school right. and study receptors and all this stuff. But what do you think about big tobacco, big alcohol and cannabis? I mean, you know, big anything, whether it's, you know, big snack food, big fast food, <laughs> right. big beverage, um, you know, the, the where the focus is on big profits. Right. Well, the conglomerates <laughs> are going to enter spaces. That's just what large right. conglomerates do. You know, right. Nestle went from chocolate to water to owning, you know, every consumer product that you can think of. You know, right. same thing with Procter & Gamble, Unilever. Yeah. These, you know, these companies are not designed to just, you know, sit with the products and the manufacturing that they have. Mm-hmm. Growth and, you know, attracting new product lines under their umbrella is what they're about. So, yeah, it's concerning. Um, what do you think about, you know, so this is what I, I posed to Greer last week and he was like, absolutely not. No, those people won't change. But what about people who are like, you know, who are heirs to the tobacco industry, heirs to the alcohol industry? They're getting into cannabis. Maybe they want to undo some of the harms they've done to society. Or do you think they're just they're the altruistic ideas don't even get through their penthouse windows? Or... No, they do. I mean, you know, people are, are complicated and they're motivated right. by multiple, you know, factors. Absolutely. And, you know, millionaires and billionaires have lots of options for where they can invest their money. And choosing cannabis, you know, does mean that mm-hmm. there's, you know, the opportunity for a lot of these businesses that wouldn't exist uh, without, you know, right. getting all this capital. So. Listen, I mean, at this stage, you know, after having done this for, you know, two decades now and now, you know, making a living talking about these kinds of developments, uh, A, I'm just happy that there's a lot to talk about because it keeps our show full. <laughs> but B, I mean, it, it, it's just hard to make these kinds of judgments about, you know, will, you know, Constellation Brands investment mm-hmm. or Altria's investment in these Canadian companies you know, necessarily taint their product lines right. with the same sort of you know, negative attention that the tobacco industry or the, you know, salty snacks industry or whatever, you know, big soda has, um, you know, going for it. So, you know, well, the tobacco industry did invent the vape pen, the scourge of our times, first invented by R.J. Reynolds. And they released this uh, vape pen, I think, in the early 90s, late 80s. And it was seen as freebasing, like freebasing nicotine. And people (laughs) freaked out. They They equated it with like freebasing cocaine. And they withdrew the product from the market. Three years later, another cannabis or another tobacco company released one and it took off because the shock value was kind of over. Yeah. But um, it's it's interesting 
But I think we should think about it. But a lot of our combustion science about combusting and inhaling products comes from the tobacco industry. That's science. So, you know, we're going to talk about this on uh, my show this week. But, you know, Senator Richard Burr, the Republican in North Carolina, took to the floor and talked about the FDA banning uh, menthol products and whether or not this was part of some, you know, conspiracy like Canada banned menthol products a few years ago, now leading to legalization and if that's going to happen here. But his big concern is he, you know, made this kind of wild cockamania connection and speech on the floor was in front of a chart about youth use of menthol in combustible tobacco products. And his big concern is that if the FDA is concerned about, you know, combustible products in youth uh, with tobacco, that they should be equally concerned about it with cannabis. Mm. My concern is that if the FDA gets involved in, you know, regulating uh, CBD products through uh, either GW Pharmaceuticals, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Epidiolex or um, with other products, that you're going to get to see people who are just, you know, completely just federally regulated, whether it's CBD, THC, what have you, everybody, you know, we say we want legalization, but there could be a hefty price tag on regulation. And the only people who are going to be able to afford to jump through these regulatory loopholes are going to be the people who are funded by big tobacco, big alcohol, and the other big, you know, conglomerates. Good point. So we're we're getting near the end of the showtime. Dan, who's your, when is your next episode coming out for Marijuana Today? Who are your guests? So uh, Marijuana Today is a weekly news and business analysis show in the cannabis space, and it drops uh, late Monday night, Tuesday, every week. Uh, you can find us on iTunes, uh, Marijuana Today. We also have a daily headline show. It's a much smaller version just of the day's headlines, Marijuana Today Daily. And you can find us on iTunes, uh, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you go to find your uh, your. Your favorite podcast, you can find us. Are you guys doing any speaking engagements around town and uh, attending any events? Yeah, I'm actually going to be speaking at the end of this month with the Cannabis Marketing Association. Oh, nice. uh, February, I want to say 25th here in New York. So if you are in the New York area and you're listening and you're interested in cannabis and marketing, uh, check out the Cannabis Marketing Association. Okay. And that's great. That's great. Awesome. And that's Jan, great. International Research Center on Cannabis and Mental Health, they have anything coming up? Yes, we do. IRCCMH is going to have a live event. And Dr. Jahan Mark, who will be uh, presenting as well as myself at NYU, 1 Washington Square North. That is at 7 o'clock on, I think, Thursday. Uh, February 21st. So we would love to have you guys come listen to us and listen to us talk about CBD and myths and conceptions. And Um, I have to redo my whole presentation because of all the news about CBD this week. Because I had this whole section about legal stuff and it's just totally (laughs) And and we really want people to join, um, you know, to come to our website, newhemptimes.com. And uh, that's part next week. Greer Barnes will be back with us. And also, if anyone is interested, uh, go to janrobertslcsw.com if you're interested in cannabis-assisted psychotherapy. And is there anything else, Jayhan? What about you? Um, Do you well, have any announcements? <laughs> uh, well, I'll be here next week for the next episode. <laughs> um, I'm going to be actually speaking at the Canna East Compliance. Oh, yeah. I believe it's... Um, uh, March 17th through 18th here in New York as well. Um, I have an article coming out on Project CBD about Gladwell's article where we break down the sort of the main four points that they use over and over again. So you can identify Berenson's psychosis in any literature. You can identify the science (laughs) abusers by 
uh, simple themes, um, and we're working. You know, I on could give them it. three free therapy sessions. <laughs> Do you think that would help? Well, I, would, I, for what, I guess the one thing I'd like to add is that Berenson put a challenge on Twitter that'll pay anyone two hundred dollars if you find an error in his book. Um, and he's already given, I think, $200 to DPA or SSW, one of those organizations for finding an error. But Just I, one? How much does this guy worth? I know, right? <laughs> Jeez. I thought there were a lot of errors. Well, he didn't reference anything, so we couldn't really well, see I what did, the Well, I did tweet him and say I found a lot of, you know, er, type 1 statistical errors, you know, making these – uh, false positive, false negative associations, and he has yet to get back to me because I did. I asked if it was per <laughs> error or if it's the same type of error repeated over and over again. Do I get it per? Oh, I love it. <laughs> trolling him. I would just send him an invoice, just itemize. <laughs> page one, page two, yeah. page three. Well, if he if he did a contract, a verbal yeah. contract, or CC anything his publisher. Yeah. yeah, let's go on yeah. Judge Judy about it. Yeah. Uh, oh my God, we could do a Judge dun, Judy dun, episode. Dun. <laughs> <laughs> dun, dun. That's the people's court. <laughs> With then, Judge Wapner, but he's dead now. <laughs> oh. Well, this has been uh, a lot of fun. Do you guys have any closing comments? Anything? Any any last hemp nuts to crack? Hemp seeds to crack? Hmm. Uh, no, thanks for having me on, you guys. You guys are a lot of fun. This was a lot of fun. Thank yeah. you Thank to you. him for coming. And Jayhan, you're a great host today. Thank you very much. Well, Thank you so much. Uh, and look, uh, you can tweet us at, at New Hemp Times. Look for us um, on Instagram. Yeah. New Hemp well. Times. All right. Next All right. week. Take care. Be safe out there. All right.